Psalm 59. Follow along with me as, as I read God's word and open with a word of prayer. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a victim of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in His steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the great blessing that it is to gather on this Lord's Day, to gather in corporate worship, to lift up praises to you, to hear of your wondrous works in salvation, in sanctification, and one day our glorification. God, that you have um, accomplished for us, that we have a waiting for us because of the person and work of Jesus. God, may our minds and our hearts be brought to think much about Christ our Savior as we look at Psalm 59 this morning. May our hope in the face of everything that this world assails us with, may our hallelujah, our praise, be found in Christ and in Christ alone.
God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake that we pray. Amen. Well, Sovereign Grace and those who are visiting this morning, as we read Psalm 59, there's, there's two questions that confront us as we consider this psalm. Two questions that, that lead us to, to ask ourselves and ponder for ourselves. Firstly, where is our hope? Where is our hope when our lives are assailed? Where is your hope when your marriage is assailed? When your family or your job or your faith is attacked and confronted with hostility? Whether it's hostility from the world, from the flesh, or from the devil, where is your hope? Where is your security? Where is your comfort? Where is your praise? And the second question that confronts us as we look at this psalm is, where is your hallelujah when you find relief from what assails you? What is it that causes your rejoicing? What is it that causes your praise or your thanksgiving when you experience relief from all of the attacks from the world, the flesh, and the devil. See, see the, the world, the world, what the world finds hope in, what the world finds security in, and comfort and assurance in, where the world puts its praise, where the world puts its thanksgiving, where the world puts its hallelujah, is in direct contrast in opposition to where Christ's church ought to put their hope and their hallelujah, their security and their praise. For, for the world, comfort and security, hope comes from man, his work, his accomplishments, his image, his stuff, and his leisure. And it's very easy for us It's very tempting for us to go along with the patterns of the world in this way. It's very easy for us to be tempted to look to our work and to our accomplishments as the source of our hope and our comfort and our security, the source of our praise when we experience relief, when we overcome something that has been challenging us for some time. It's very easy for us, it's very tempting for us to put our hope and our praise in our stuff and our leisure. Now, not all of these things that I'm mentioning on a very general level are perhaps sinful in and of themselves. It's, it's not sinful in and of itself to um, enjoy your work and enjoy your accomplishments that you um, have at work. It's, it's not sinful in and of itself to enjoy leisure. To, to think about your bed after a long day's work. And long just to put your head down and fall asleep. Some of you, that's the only thing after a long day. Of being assailed by all the different things that you have that confront you. Is just longing to go to bed. 
in and of itself, that is maybe not sinful, but we do need to remember this, that all of these things are at the very least temporary. They're momentary. You may experience relief by laying your head down after a long day, a difficult day, a day of fighting and scrambling, but you're going to wake up and it's going to be there again. So at best, all of these things, though they may provide temporary relief, they're only temporary. But if we're also not careful, they can become a great source of idolatry to us as well. We can put all of our hope and all of our praise in man and his accomplishments or our own accomplishments. The stuff and the image that we've accumulated for ourselves. We can put our ultimate source and security in that. If we are not careful, it can become idolatry. Brothers and sisters, true hope, true hope as we will see from this psalm comes ultimately from Christ and Christ alone. And Christ and Christ alone is, is truly worthy and only worthy and deserving of our hallelujah, of our praise. Now, Psalm 59, as we see from um, the heading here, the superscript, is a psalm of David. Uh, it's a miktam. A miktam is, is a type of poem or song that's accompanied with music. So when you see a miktam there, that's usually letting you know that this is a song or a poem that has a certain type of music that it accompanies with it. And the occasion, the occasion that David is referring to when he writes this song or this psalm uh, comes from 1 Samuel 19. 1 Samuel 19, specifically verses 11 to 18. Now here's just some of the historical context of what's been happening in David's life. Um, Jonathan, Saul's son and David's close friend, has brought temporary peace between Saul and David. Saul had been pursuing after David, and Jonathan appeals to his father to bring about peace and reconciliation between Saul and David. And this does happen for a period of time. And we see in 1 Samuel 19, David comes back and actually fights for Saul again against the Philistines. And he, and he wins some battles, uh, wins some battles. And after a brief period of time of peace, Saul's hatred for David is rekindled. And he seeks his life by any means possible yet again. And that's where this um, heading or superscript finds its specific context. Turn with me. Keep a finger in Psalm 59. Turn with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 19. First Samuel 19 and specifically verse 11. We'll start reading there. I want to read a little bit of, of the historical background just so you get a sense of what it is that that David is, is dealing with what is confronting him and assailing him as he writes this psalm. 1 Samuel 19. 1 Samuel 19 and verse 11. Now Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him 
that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. And then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He has said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. So now you can see a little bit of the historical context. That again, after a brief period of peace between Saul and David, Saul goes on the attack once again. Goes after the pursuit of David's life once more. And he sends men, he sends soldiers to track David down, even in his own sleep, to take him at night. And yet, he, fle- he flees and he escape, escapes once again. But this is where Psalm 59 finds its occasion. This is what's going on in David's life. And what's the purpose? Why does David ultimately pen this psalm? Why does he write this song for the people of God? Ultimately, to remind God's people of God's steadfast love for them and His supreme power to protect them and to punish their enemies. And we see David's trust in God for these things in Psalm 59 by the way that it illustrates two Two important things in David's life. First, it illustrates David's hope. Where his hope is, where his comfort is, where his assurance is. And it illustrates David's hallelujah. Where his praise is, where his thanksgiving is. In the midst of his triumph and his relief from all that assails him and confronts him. So let's look at Psalm 59, verses 1 through 10. Psalm 59, verses 1 through 10. In verses 1 through 7, we see David expressing his hope in his plea for deliverance. Now, why does David need to be delivered? Well, obviously, from the historical context that we looked at, Um, we can see why he needs deliverance. And we can see from these verses themselves why he needs it. Look with me at verse 1. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. And save me from bloodthirsty men. From men who seek my life. So why does David need deliverance? Why does he plead to God? 
Because one, he recognizes that God and God alone is the one who can actually deliver him. David recognizes that from all that confronts him, all that is thrown at him, the king of Israel, Saul, and all that he has in his power, the only thing that David has to appeal to, to look to, is the sovereign power and might of Almighty God. He recognizes that he is powerless in and of himself. And he must cry out to the one in whom is supreme in power and might and majesty. David pleads to God for deliverance because there are those who are around him who are seeking to work evil. They're scheming constantly. Scheming ways that they can attack him and end his life. Later in, uh, in, in this section, in, in verse 6 and 7, it describes David's enemies like dogs. Howling dogs. Who are prowling around the city in search of David. Bellowing with their mouths or, or salivating from their mouths. Hungry and thirsty. And the only thing that will satisfy their cravings is the death of David. That's the imagery that David is using to describe his enemies. He needs deliverance and he turns the only one that can give it to him. Notice in verses 3 and 4. David says, for behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine, they run and make ready. He's innocent. He's innocent of the injustice that he's experiencing by the hands of Saul and the schemes of Saul, and all of Saul's men that are under his charge who are seeking his life. This is not a claim of sinlessness in general. That's an important distinction. But what David is claiming is that their attacks, their their assailing of him, their pursuit of his life, their schemes to take his life, is unjustified because he's innocent in the sight of God as it relates to his relationship with Saul and these men that seek his life. David's hope for deliverance is in the only one who has the power to stand against the king and all that he throws at David. Verses 8 and 10. Look with me there. David grounds his his hope in this plea of deliverance. He grounds his hope in recognizing God's sovereign rule and steadfast love. Notice verse 8. But you, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. This is in direct response to verse 7. Verse 7 that says, they are bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips. For who, they think, will hear us? 
David's enemies think nothing of God. Think nothing of the Lord's judgment. They think that they're getting away with these crimes. They're doing it at night. They're doing it in secret. They think nothing. And then David in this psalm, in writing, these men think that they're going to get away with what they're doing. He says, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold them in derision. It's not just a laughter of, oh, look at how foolish these enemies of David are. It's a laughter of, look how foolish they are, and they think that they're going to get away with it. They think that they're injustice, that their evil plotting will go unnoticed and go unpunished. This is, this is very similar to what we see in Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm, in Psalm chapter 2, um, starting in verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. This is exactly what is happening in the life of David. The Lord's anointed, the Lord's promised king. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. This is the Lord's response to all those who stand opposed to His anointed. And ultimately, who stand opposed to Him. If you remember when we looked at Psalm 54, opposition to the Lord's anointed is ultimately opposition to the Lord Himself. And and God looks at this opposition and He laughs. He holds them in derision. He holds them in in laughter at their folly and ultimately their impending judgment. Then, this is verse 5, Psalm 2, Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. David's enemies think that they're going to get away with this and the Lord says, That's not going to happen. David knows this. This is where David's confidence is. His assurance. His security and his comfort. In the face of all that assails him. And particularly here. The men that Saul has sent after him to take his life. Who think that it will go unnoticed. God laughs. And David in verse 9. Psalm 59 Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. Oh, God, you are my fortress. David trusts that that God will execute judgment on his enemies and that he will protect him. David looks to the Lord as his strength and his fortress, his His high tower. God is David's strength. There is nothing that can stand against God. There is nothing that can penetrate the walls of our strong and mighty fortress. There is nothing that can reach us 
when we are secured in the Lord. David appeals to this as his hope in the midst of everything that comes his way. God's sovereign rule is his protection. And in verse 10, notice that David appeals to God's steadfast love as another source of his hope. When David looks at everything that is thrown his way, everything that assails his life, everything that puts his life in jeopardy, in danger, he turns to the Lord, his sovereignty for his, uh, for protection. He also turns to God's steadfast love for his salvation and his triumph. The word there, translate, that we would translate as steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. The word hesed is all over the Old Testament. Hesed is, is, is the, the driving force or the grounds or the basis of all of God's covenant faithfulness. It is His tender mercy. It is His love that when He casts this love upon someone, particularly David and the nation of Israel, it undergirds and drives all of God's workings in the life of His people. So David appeals to God's sovereign rule for protection and God's steadfast love for His salvation and ultimately His triumph over His enemies. David has firm confidence. Firm confidence that he will be victorious over his enemies, that he'll be delivered. Why? Because the, because the God of the universe... The God of Israel has put his love on David. And he stands secured. This is David's hope. This is David's hope in the midst of a hostile world. Now where is his hallelujah? Where is his praise? Look with me at verses 11 to 17. David grounds his praise in God's sovereign rule. Firstly, look at verse verses 11 to 12. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them, make them totter by your power and bring them down. O Lord, our shield, for the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride for the cursing and lies that they utter. David looks to the Lord and his sovereign rule and judgment. Firstly, as a means of providing a lesson for God's people. Surely a lesson for his enemies, but also a lesson for his people. He says, kill them not, lest my people forget. Now this isn't a, a contradiction. This is also an important clarification to be made. Because we just saw David pray and express his hope that God will consume his enemies. And we see again in verse 13, a plea that God would consume them. But here in verse 11, he says, kill them not. But the phrase that comes after that is important. Kill them not, lest my people forget. What David is praying for here is not that God does not kill his enemies or put them down or to destroy them. 
He's actually praying to the Lord that it would be a slow death. That it would be a slow downfall and destruction. Why? Specifically here, so that the people would not forget. So that the people of Israel would look and see the slow downfall, the the tottering, the tottering, the, the, the wandering of these enemies of David. That they would see them trapped in their pride and the the effects, the consequences of their sin and their standing in opposition to the Lord and to His anointed. That the people of God would see His judgment being acted out slowly on the enemy nations and that they too would learn a lesson. God, God does this. All the time, particularly in the Old Testament, in the face of his people's waywardness and inattention to God, God uses a, a number of, of means, oftentimes through hostile powers, to teach his people a lesson. Sometimes God raises up enemy nations to discipline his people who for a period of time are, are wayward, and who are not acknowledging the Lord and living for Him, living holy and upright lives. They forgot His covenant faithfulness and promises. And the Lord disciplines them by by sending enemy nations to capture them for a period of time. Sometimes God raises up enemy nations to attack His people as tests of loyalty. Sometimes is growth in maturity so that they learn. So that they would grow in faithfulness. And here we see that God uses the slow judgment of David's enemies as a means of teaching the people a lesson so that they would remember who rules over them. To walk faithfully to Him. To entrust themselves to Him. And this is a great reminder for us as well. A great comfort to us as well. Sometimes we don't see what's going on behind the scenes and we see maybe all that assails us and we see all that confronts us. And we're not aware that God is doing something for His glory and our ultimate good, even in the midst of what confronts us. Just as He's doing here. And just as He does in the the, the bringing down of this nation as He judges it. So, David, David looks to God's sovereign rule as the source of His praise. Particularly in the way that it will teach the people of God a lesson. But also, he looks to God's sovereign rule and judgment as a source of praise in the way that it will teach a lesson to the rest of the nations. Look at verses 13 and following, 13 to 15. Consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. 
God's, God's judgment on David's enemies is both a lesson for God's people to remind them of who their trust ought to, ought to be and to remind them of who rules over them, who their king is, who their faithful one is, who their strength is. It's also a lesson to the nations that there is a God who rules over His people and no one can stand in His way. There's a great echo here of David's words. You don't need to turn there. David's words in, in 1 Samuel uh, 17, 46, when David goes before Goliath and strikes Goliath down. In verse 46 of 1 Samuel 17, he says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. All throughout redemptive history, we see this pattern. We see this pattern of of the seed of the serpent raising its head against the seed of the woman. We see this, this theme all throughout. And time and time again, we see the, the seed of the serpent rise its head against the seed of the woman and God manifests His faithfulness, His steadfast love, His mercy, and His power. And He reveals and makes known that no one will stand against the ones in whom I have covenanted with. And we know that the, the seed, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, Though we see them typified, if you will, we see um, analogies of them. We see representations of them all throughout the Old, Old Testament. We see that all of the Old Testament types and shadows point forward to the Christ, the true seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent, which is sin, death, and Satan himself. So when we see God's people assailed by their enemies, and when we see God in His steadfast love deliver them and execute judgment, it points forward. It points forward to a greater day to come. When the seed of the woman will come. And He will defeat once and for all the seed of the serpent. He will crush him. And those who are united by faith to this seed will experience victory and salvation as well. David grounds his praise, his hallelujah, in both God's sovereign judgment, righteousness and rule, but also his steadfast love for him. Again, God's steadfast love being the basis for all of God's working in his life. God raising up Jonathan and his wife to be a means of David experiencing relief from his enemies. David experiencing victory in battle. All of this, all of this are means that God uses 
to establish his steadfast love and to reveal his steadfast love in David's life. Why? Because God has promised to David that he would do so. And God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his covenant promises. And that is revealed to us in Psalm 59. Brothers and sisters, as we we look at Psalm 59... We can't. We can't miss. We can't miss the true and greater David that this all points to. Psalm 59 points us ultimately to Christ. It's ultimately about the Christ to come. David cries out in Psalm 59 verse 10, My God in His steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. God will meet me. His steadfast love will come to me. Brothers and sisters, God's steadfast love has met us, has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. God with us. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him. God has met His people in the person and work of Christ. And Christ is the true and greater David entered into this world. And he too endured a hostile world. Isaiah 53, you can turn there. We'll be jumping back and forth out of Psalm 53 for a moment. In Psalm 53, the prophet prophesies of the suffering servant, of the Christ to come. And what it is that he's going to experience when he comes here. And in verses 7 through 9, the prophet says this of the suffering servant, that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had no done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Just like David. The true and better David to come. The final promised king of all of God's people came here and experienced hostility of the greatest kind. Suffered oppression and judgment from his own people and from the nations. And he too is innocent of their judgment. More innocent than David could ever claim to. David, who though may have been innocent as it pertained to his relationship with Saul and wasn't deserving of of the experience of Saul's judgment and the enemies that were coming after him, but we know that David in and of himself is not a sinful man, but the Christ, the suffering servant, 
Not only is he innocent as it pertains to his relationship with Israel and the nations, he's innocent before God. He's blameless. He's blameless. He's without fault as it pertains to God's law. In fact, he's been perfectly obedient to it. Altogether righteous. The Christ to come. Isaiah 53 says that he will be oppressed and he will be afflicted. Yet, like a lamb that's led to a slaughter, he will remain silent. He will take upon this judgment. He'll take upon the injustice that he receives. Ultimately, because what he's taking on in taking on their injustice, is the just wrath of God Almighty for sinners like you and me. Taking on Himself the sins of the entire world. He bore the wrath of man. Ultimately, was the wrath of God Himself. Coming down in judgment for sinful men and women. Christ, the Lord's anointed that David ultimately points to, came into this world and endured hostility and judgment. But his enduring of hostility and judgment was not without hope, was not without confidence that he was accomplishing a greater work in his endurance of all of this suffering. Psalm 53 in verse 10 tells us this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. See again, all of the oppression and the judgment that he experienced by the hands of men, this was all according to the will of God. That by their oppression and judgment, he was taking upon himself the just wrath of Almighty God. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Christ endured this hostility of the world because he knew That he was accomplishing the will of God Almighty. He endured hostility. He looked through it and persevered in the face of man's judgment because he was accomplishing God's plan of redemption for all time. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 5. In Hebrews 5, uh, Starting in verse 7. Hebrews 5, 7. He says, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. We can imagine that, that Christ, as He frequently was found in prayer, And as we even have some of those prayers recorded for us in the Gospels, we could imagine that the Psalms, that obviously the Lord 
was greatly familiar with. That he knew and knew ultimately was pointing forward to himself. That when he was in great prayer and supplication with loud cries and tears, Psalm 59 may have been a prayer that was on his mind and on his lips as he prayed. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal life to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. See, Jesus knew that when he came to dwell among men, that when he took on their flesh, he knew that his life would be faced with trials, that his life would be faced with suffering, that he would be assailed. He'd be assailed by the world, that he'd be assailed by his own people, that he'd be assailed by Satan himself. But he would press on and he would endure because he knew that he was accomplishing the will of God. That he was accomplishing God's plan of eternal salvation for all who obey him, for all who respond to the call to faith and trust in him. He knew what he was doing and he set his gaze upon that. He set his joy upon accomplishing the will of God. In Isaiah 53, one last time, in verse 11, we see the writer responding to verse 10. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Christ's hallelujah, Christ's praise, Christ's joy, even in the midst of enduring hostility and suffering, his joy and praise was grounded in the accomplishment of, of God's will. And this is ultimately realized in Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us that the Son of God took on flesh. That He took on the role of a servant. Humbled Himself. And being found in human form, he became obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, it says that God raised him, raised him up, so that every tongue, every nation would look upon him and come to recognize that Christ is Lord. That He is the exalted one. 
This is the joy that was set before him. That the writer of Hebrews says the joy that was set before him that led him to despise the shame and to press on. To press on and is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Why? Because he accomplished. He accomplished all that the Father had given him to do. Christ suffered greatly, but he endured this suffering. Because in his suffering, he accomplished salvation for his people. And this, brothers and sisters is our hope and our praise when we look at Psalm 59. It's only first by considering Christ, His person, His work, that He fulfills, that Psalm 59 ultimately points to, that we find hope and we find praise. We can read along in Psalm 59 and we can read what David is going through and we can look to it with confidence. We can look to it with hope and security. Only by grace, through faith, in Christ. We too, as Christians, will face hostility in this world. We will be assailed from the world, from from the flesh, from the devil. We'll experience temptations from within. We'll experience temptations from without, from the world itself. We will experience hostility for our faith and our faithfulness. And our hope, our praise, our security, our hallelujah is grounded in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We can endure ultimately because Christ suffered, endured, and triumphed over death and was raised victoriously. Paul in Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the One who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The answer is ultimately no. Remember, no, in all things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Our hope and our hallelujah in the face of a hostile world. In the face of the attacks from the world, the flesh, and the devil is the person and work of Jesus. So brothers and sisters, Sovereign Grace, those who are visiting, where is your hope? Where is your hallelujah? The world and the church answer those questions completely different directions. The world often looks inward, looks to the self. The church ought to look outward to Christ, 
to his person, to his work. The former ends in misery and destruction. While the latter ends in joy and everlasting glory in the presence of God. Listen to this as, as, as we close this picture that we get in Revelation 19. The consummation of all things. The rejoicing that is to be had in heaven when a God's will is, is fully and finally accomplished. And we see this picture of, of heaven and glory. Psalm 19 verses 1 through 2. Firstly, it says this, After this, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of of his servants. And then again in verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Is this what you are looking to? For your hope and your assurance and your praise in the midst of the various trials and sufferings that you experience in this life. When you too, like David, are experiencing attacks from all over, from within your own flesh, from the world and from the devil. Brothers and sisters, or those who don't know Christ, let me leave you with this. True hope is found in Christ alone. And Christ alone is worthy and deserving of our hallelujah. So in life and in death, may we cling to the One who gives us eternal security and an eternal song that exalts and praises Him for who He is and all that He accomplished to bring about our salvation and our deliverance and our triumph over sin and death as well. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You for the grace and mercy that You have lavished upon us in Your Son. God, I pray that we God, we be stirred up by Your Word this morning. That we'd be stirred up to be convicted where conviction is needed. For where we have looked to for hope and security that is ultimately not You. God, that we would set our gaze upon Christ, who He is and all that it is that He accomplished for our source of praise and joy and comfort. God, we thank You so much for this morning. Thank You for Your Word and the Gospel that You preach to us as we gather together. 
God, we thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.